0: Shit Platypus Says, episode 54. Hello, and welcome to this new episode of your Shit Platypus Says podcast, the commentary on the commentary of the left. My name is Lisa, and I am one of your co-hosts. This episode includes a talk with our founding member Chris Catrone, who was interviewed by our member Johannes Kemper and me, on his article, The End of the Gilded Age, Discontents of the Second Industrial Revolution Today. We talked about different problems of the Gilded Age that still unpacked us today, the history of progressivism, as well as the things that led Chris to write his article back in 2017. If you like the podcast, spread the word, share it and leave us a comment and more important, leave us a review. Please mark your calendar for the highlight of your platypus activities. Our 2023 annual international convention, which will take place from March 31st to April 2nd in Chicago. The 2023 convention theme will be history and class consciousness. For more information, stay tuned. We will keep you updated here in the podcast and we'll provide all information on our website, which is platypus1917.org, which is the word platypus, followed by the numbers 1917.org. And now, enjoy the episode. Hello, this is Lisa. I am one of your SPS co-hosts and I'm very happy to welcome Johannes Kemper who is a member of the Leipzig chapter to join me today to conduct the following interview and I'm pleased to welcome Chris Katron with us. As you all might know Chris is one of the founding members of Platypus and we invited him today to talk with us about his article The End of the Gilded Age, Discontents of the Second Industrial Revolution, today, published in 2017. So, thanks so much for coming on, guys.
1: Hello. Hey. So, Chris, your article is about the Gilded Age. In Germany, and I think in whole Europe, we do not really use this term to describe that period. Much more known is the term Belle belle Epoque. Both terms are describing the period at the end of the 19th century approximately from 1860 to 1900, also known as the Second Industrial Revolution. Is that correct? And why are you writing this article about that specific time? Why are you going back to the Second Industrial Revolution, the Gilded Age, and not to the First Industrial Revolution in the first half of the 19th
2: century, where capitalism originally occurred? You know, I think that capitalism has developed in different phases. And the question is, you know, in the popular culture, people will talk about the third industrial revolution, or maybe even the fourth industrial revolution, you know, the cybernetic revolution in the 20th century, and then maybe the internet more recently. The cybernetic revolution would have been the 50s and 60s, the invention of the computer. My point was to say, in fact, we still live in the world of the second industrial revolution, um, which is different from the first industrial revolution in certain key respects. Now, maybe I'd narrow it down a little bit, time-wise, you know, period-wise. I mean, certainly in the United States, it's uh, after the Civil War, and in Germany, it's after the Franco-Prussian War. But also, people will talk about Wilhelmine Germany. You know, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II, uh, his era, which I think captures something specific, the, the liberal, optimistic character of this period. And the Gilded Age is a term invented by Mark Twain, an American writer, who was, you know, a, a social and political satirist. So he was, you know, really criticizing the United States of his time with this phrase, the Gilded Age, that it's sort of gilded on the outside, but maybe kind of rotten on the inside the Belle Epoque doesn't capture that quality, right? So Belle Epoque is just the beautiful era. You know, it's the era of peace in Europe between 1871 and 1914. And it's also the era of imperialism, you know, and finance capital, these kinds of things. And I feel that we are still dealing with those issues today. We're still dealing with uh, the inventions of the Second Industrial Revolution You know, we're still dealing with basically the electromagnetic revolution as opposed to the thermodynamic revolution, right? It's electricity, it's not steam power, right? Uh, So the first industrial revolution is the steam engine. The second industrial revolution is electricity. And all the inventions, you know, cinema, radio, recorded, you know, sound, recorded music, the automobile, airplanes... Right? I feel like this is the world that we live in. We just live in the playing out of that era. We, don't, we haven't really gone beyond the electromagnetic revolution. Not really. Now, that's technology, which is the con- usual way, the conventional way of talking about capitalism. Capitalism is usually understood as technological. Now, socially, right, there are these differences as well from the first industrial revolution namely the second industrial revolution is the era of marxism the first industrial revolution was the era of socialism and communism you know socialism and communism predate marxism and marx and engels you know the original marxists the party of two they were thinkers of the first industrial revolution but marxism as a mass movement is a product of the second industrial revolution And so, you know, my other point, which is a very platypus point, of course, is to say that we're still living in the aftermath of Marxism, right? We're not, we're not living in the era of like socialism and communism generally, or capitalism generally, we're living in the results of something much more specific, the second industrial revolution and the socialist workers movement that the second industrial revolution gave birth to. You know, and that's why, you know, Germany was the center of Marxism. Um, But it's also, you know, we tend to forget how prominent Marxist socialism was in the United States before World War I. And England and France, which are the countries of the first industrial revolution, were not as deeply touched by Marxism as the United States and Germany. And Russia. Russia. So we usually think of Russia, Russian backwardness and the Russian Revolution, peasant revolution, this kind of thing. No, Russia was um, a center of the Second Industrial Revolution. It was the site of the largest factories in the world before World War I. Now, it was the parts of Russia that ceased to be Russia, like Eastern Poland, places like that, that were more highly industrialized. But the Russian Revolution is the product of the Second Industrial Revolution. It's not the product of Russian czarist peasant backwardness and, you know, a feudal aristocratic system. No, the Russian Revolution happened because of the industrialization of Russia, which was part of this broader phenomenon, the second wave of the Industrial Revolution that affected England and France, of course, but expanded to places like Italy and obviously Germany, Japan, the United States, Russia, which became more, more important countries um, in the 20th century. You know, the new powers as opposed to the old powers. For a reason. So,
1: Chris, you're an American, and in your article you're connecting the news of the Gilded Age in America with Europe. You speak about the SPD and the revisionist dispute as another side of the coin of the same global capitalist developments. Mm -hmm. Could you please elaborate on the impact Europe and European socialism had on the USA and vice versa in that period?
2: One of the themes of my article, so it's a strange article. So the article, uh, let me give you some background as to why I wrote the article. There were two things that triggered my writing of the article. One was a Ken Burns documentary series on the Roosevelt's. And especially his uh, episodes on Theodore Roosevelt in particular. So the early history of the Roosevelt's. It's basically Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and then to be PC, Eleanor Roosevelt. Right, who lived into the 60s. And who tried to advise like JFK and people like that you know, and was a a player in the Democratic Party in the 50s. But really, it's Theodore Roosevelt to FDR. That's that's what the story is. And I was really struck by the story of Theodore Roosevelt, who I hadn't really thought about, you know, in a long time. Uh, And I'm from New York. I'm from Long Island. And so I'm from the Theodore Roosevelt world. And so there's something kitschy about Theodore Roosevelt, you know. So there was that. And there was also this Glenn Beck piece, Glenn Beck, who's a right wing commentator in the United States, and who was really deploring Hillary versus Trump in 2016. You know, who really regretted that there was no alternative to what he called progressivism, right? So he saw Trump as the end of a kind of neoliberalism in the Republican Party, and a kind of an assimilation of the Republican Party to the Democratic Party in progressivism. So that and of course the ambient environment of the millennial left and the turn of the millennial left uh, with the Bernie campaign, with the Democratic Socialists of America led by Jacobin Magazine. The issue of progressivism and socialism and how I found the left to still be dominated by a 1930s kind of mentality That's really about the liquidation of Marxism into progressive capitalism. Now, progressivism, where does that come from? It comes from the discontents of the second industrial revolution. That's where it comes from. It comes from the changes in in the United States and Britain and France and Germany in this period that prompted a new kind of political vision. So there's, you know... Bismarckism in Germany, but there's also liberalism in Germany and the progressive party in Germany, which was a party that the SPD would sometimes enter into electoral agreements with in the Reichstag elections. And that uh, Eduard Bernstein and other revisionists, the leaders of the, um, the labor union movement associated with the SPD, associated with the socialists, they wanted more cooperation with the middle class progressives, right? Against the Kaiserreich. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. So the progressives, you know, they're, they're kind of liberals. um, But what's interesting is the, the very idea of progressivism, right? Not liberalism, but progressivism. So liberalism You can have a liberal response to capitalism that's of a kind of conservative reactionary character where you want to preserve small-scale production against industry. And so, you know, the peculiarity of the United States is that the United States really only has liberal politics. It has progressive liberals and it has conservative liberals. The other thing that is curious about American history that tends to be forgotten is the reversal of the parties so it used to be the case in the Gilded Age that the Republicans were the progressive liberals and the Democrats were the conservative liberals only with FDR did that change and the Democrats became the progressive liberals and the Republicans became the conservative liberals and that change was only really completed in the 60s, because the New Deal coalition of FDR included what we would call conservative liberals now, like the Dixiecrats, um, the people who wanted to defend the right of white people to be racist and live separately from black people, you know, to defend the rights of civil society against the state, the state being the U.S. federal government imposing the end of slavery and civil rights for blacks, which they tried to do, like, since the Civil War. But they were blocked from doing by the Dixiecrats, who basically mounted a conservative liberal response to the attempt to enforce government-enforced civil rights and equality. And then that played out, and it it took a 100 years for... until the 1960s for it finally to be kind of fully transformed. Um, And that happened through the shift in the democratic party from conservative to progressive. Now there is this other character who's also interesting, Woodrow Wilson. He's a, he's a conservative in certain respects and a progressive in other respects. So he, like Theodore Roosevelt is a progressive, but he's racially conservative Right. So, um the Republicans, the other thing that needs to be understood is the Republicans dominated American politics after the Civil War. So, almost all the presidents were Republicans after the Civil War. And the Congress was usually majority Republican. Woodrow Wilson was elected in 1912 as president as a Democrat because of a split in the Republican party where Theodore Roosevelt ran He didn't get the nomination of the Republican Party, and so he ran as a third-party progressive party. And it was only because of that split that Woodrow Wilson was able to win the election and bring the Democrats into the presidency, and he promptly segregated Washington, D.C. that had not been segregated, but he segregated it. He also segregated the military, which had not been segregated. Yeah. So, um... You know, but he was also a progressive, but he was slightly different kind of progressive than Theodore Roosevelt. And also 1912 is of note because it's the election in which Eugene Debs got the highest number of votes ever. And the Socialist Party in general did, did its best in 1912. By the way, 1912 is also the high watermark of the day. So 1912 is a very important year in the history of socialism and Marxism. It's the height of the Second International Marxist Socialist Movement. And it led to World War One. It led to World War One. It was the German government's reaction to that election in 1912 that led to World War One. So um, now where does progressivism come from? So generally it comes from you know, uh, a recognition that something new has to be done in the face of modern industrial society. It also comes as a response to the socialist movement. How
1: big was the socialist movement in the U.S. at this time? I mean, there is this 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 figure um, people might know, um, um, Eugene Debs. Yes. But uh, compared to 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 Germany, for example, the, the SPD, which was really like the the biggest player in the socialist movement in the mm-hmm. world at this mm-hmm. time, and the global uh, leader of of socialism, um, if you will. Uh, how uh, how much of a player was the socialist movement in the in the
2: US? So the Socialist Party in the United States was large, but proportionally it wasn't as large as the SPD in Germany. Also, it didn't fare as well electorally as the SPD did. So the SPD became the largest party in the Reichstag. The Socialist Party never had that kind of prominence in the United States. So Eugene Debs in 1912 got 10% of the vote. That's a lot. Got 10% of the vote. So no socialist or communist has ever gotten as much as he did. But also electoralism wasn't in neither case, in the SPD's case, nor in the case of um, the Socialist Party of America, that was not the main activity of the party. Now, another difference between the SPD and the SPA in the United States was that the SPA never dominated the labor movement successfully the way the SPD did in Germany. So although they, they tried in various ways, but they faced a kind of conservative uh, labor movement coming out of the Second Industrial Revolution, there was some labor radicalism, But, uh, and they did participate in the labor movement, of course, but there was a kind of dropping off from an earlier radicalism, the Knights of Labor, who were much more kind of socialist and radical. That's in the immediate aftermath of uh, the Civil War. The Knights of Labor came, you know, they were the the main, um, most prominent kind of labor organization in the United States. The American Federation of Labor, led by Samuel Gompers, was notoriously conservative. And Eugene Debs tried to outflank the AFL by launching the Industrial Workers of the World in 1906. And part of what prompted that, the attempt to establish industrial unionism, which only really came to fruition with the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO in the 1930s. But part of what prompted the launching of the IWW in 1906 was the Russian Revolution of 1905. And the general strikes and the Soviets, the workers' councils, inspired the formation of the IWW in the United States. But it was also motivated by, again, the needs of the the more advanced results of the Second Industrial Revolution, the need for industrial unionism, as opposed to what's known as craft unionism, where workers are organized depending on what job they do, as opposed to all the workers in an industry being organized in one union, the different professions or jobs would be organized by different unions in the craft union in the AFL model. So there are significant differences between the the SPD in Germany and the SPA. It's also noteworthy, you know, I don't want to forget this part. Eugene Debs was a Marxist because of the SPD. Right? So he was uh put in jail and in jail He was told to read Kautsky's The Class Struggle, and that converted him into a Marxist. He had been a populist before that. So before progressivism, there was the populist movement. And often in the historiography, a conflation is made between populism and socialism in this era. Now, populism fed directly into the Democratic Party and did produce the progressivism to a certain extent of Woodrow Wilson, Um, but Eugene Debs broke with that populism and broke with the Democratic Party. And that's where the Socialist Party of America comes from. It comes from that break from a kind of petty bourgeois or middle class kind of populism and progressivism. Right. So there's populism and then there's progressivism. Progressivism comes a little bit later. And like I said, I think is best understood as a response to and against the socialist movement. What they have in common, populism and progressivism, is the middle class character as opposed to the proletarian working class character.
0: You mentioned that the liberalism um, was separated in the conservatives and the progressives um, Mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. So one question that appears is who are the conservatives and who are the progressives today, maybe. Um, And I have to say that I am a little bit confused by these terms today because there is a certain progressivism in words and then another progressivism in praxis so uh, for example you write in your article that perhaps the progressives are the more cunning conservatives or the conservatives are the more cunning progressives and um, especially when we look as you mentioned to the election of trump uh, or the Mm -hmm. election in 2016 hillary and Mm -hmm. trump the Democratic Party nominee became the conservative choice and, and, and Trump became suddenly the, 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 the figure of change. Looking back to what you said about Eugene Debs, the, the, another question that appears is, why can't it be the task of the left to be the better progressives?
2: Well, that's what they try to do. That's what they try to do. And so the interesting thing is that socialism is not really progressivism. So, progressivism is just trying to keep pace with capitalism. You know, it's it's advocating political changes necessary in capitalism, changes that capitalism has made necessary. Now, of course, that's, from a socialist perspective, that's conservative, right? Making changes to maintain capitalism is to conserve capitalism. It's conservative. On the one hand. On the other hand, the socialist movement of the working class is also a conservative movement. It's an attempt to defend the rights of labor against industry and the changes that result from proletarianization through industrial production. Right, it originates in the early 19th century as a reaction of the workers, the socialist you know, reaction of the workers against the Industrial Revolution. There's also utopian socialism, which is this peculiar thing that tries to take advantage of industry, but in a completely different way than the way it's being pursued in liberal capitalism at the time. So again, a dialectical approach, in other words, why Marxism, why a Marxist approach is required is that actually one needs to see the self-contradictory and dialectical character of capitalism, changes in capitalism, and ideological and political responses to those changes. So one of my favorite quotations from Bismarck, who is the architect of modern Germany, is, you know, he said, well, I'm accused of being a reactionary. I'm accused of being a conservative. I'm accused of being a monarchist. I'm accused of being a liberal. I'm accused of being a progressive. I'm accused of being a socialist. Said, I'm all those things, but I really am none of those things. I just reach for the hem of God as he passes and hope to do his will. Hmm. Right? That's perfect.
1: Bismarck was a revolutionary in this time, right? I mean sure. there was um the 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 socialists led by august bebel and there was bismarck and uh, both were aiming for a certain kind of a revolution and uh, bismarck certainly uh, created germany Mm -hmm. and um, even though prussia would would um, be destroyed by that and Mm -hmm. uh, they kind of knew that and um, yeah he was not directly celebrated for that but it was fine and Bebel once said in one of his speeches that when the socialists want to do um, a revolution like, uh, like that or in that direction, they are uh, going to jail for it. And uh, I mean, it was, um, yeah, it was a revolutionary time and different uh, perspectives, different characters, different political perspectives were, were picking that up and taking advantage of that. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, what I'd say is then, you know, doing what's necessary in capitalism is the the character of politics in capitalism. So politics in capitalism is just a matter of doing what's necessary. Now, the struggle for socialism is also that. It's also that. The problem is that it can become merely that. So now we have a kind of social democratic, reformist, kind of progressive left that tries to manage capitalism better than others tries to compete for the political management of capitalism now in order to transcend the necessity of capitalism you would have to fulfill it right the problem is that you need to do both and that's where the contradictory character comes in and so you know we have we are living in a in a capitalist society so to speak. It's really a bourgeois society dealing with the problem of capitalism. And it seems that maintaining capitalism is also maintaining bourgeois society, but it's also destroying bourgeois society, right? And to actually maintain bourgeois society would mean destroying capitalism or, or tempering it at the very least. Again, what's progressive and what's conservative here? And that's why, you know, occasionally people on the left will discover, oh, actually socialism is neither left nor right. By which they mean it's neither progressive nor conservative. Or it's both. And neither. That's true. That is true. Right? However, I still, you know, am attached to the idea that the left means Marxism you know, it means socialism, it means Marxism. So I'm not yet willing to say, oh, the left just means the progressive capitalists.
0: Mm-hmm. So this this brings me to um, continuity and change in capitalism. So when we talk about the era of Marxism, Marx became Marx in 1848. And in a way, we can describe um conservative as well as progressive capitalism as bonapartism and mm-hmm. how does um this all relate to the task of socialism i have the feeling that the left does recognize changes so they all the all the panels we do leftists mm-hmm. do t- tell us that we can't do marxism as marx ha- wrote it in his time today and i mean this might be true um, so right, they right. recognize they they do recognize change, but then, um when it comes to political changes in capitalism or changes of policies, they are blindsided by it in a way. Mm-hmm. So I want to know how does this relate to the overall task that is um open since eighteen forty eight and how does um, recognizing changes in capitalism relate to the task of socialism?
2: Right, so here's another kind of occasion for a dialectical approach and recognizing contradiction. And again, that sort of dialectic of progress and conservatism which can be seen as regressive. So I would say that generally speaking, you know, the Marxist approach to contradiction in capitalism is one of a temporal and historical contradiction. Meaning the fact that ideology and consciousness and practice lags behind capitalism. Capitalism, the way I like to put it, capitalism is more revolutionary than we are. Mm. It will always be more revolutionary than we are. And what's good about capitalism is that it's revolutionary. What's bad about capitalism is that it's revolutionary. And we're involved in... In capitalism, but let's say in this, you know, if there's a struggle for socialism, we're involved in a deeply self-contradictory process that appears to be motivated by both humanistic and anti-humanistic or inhuman concerns and considerations. Now, all that that means is that we're in the midst of a fundamental transformation of of humanity, and that's going to look inhuman to us who are in the midst of it, right? And it's also going to be, it's going to be participated in by people in the name of the human, but it's actually going to be producing what also appears to be the inhuman, right? That's going to be going on. And, you know, I'm using this term of human and humanism. These are bourgeois concepts, right? No one was really a humanist before a bourgeois society. And there's also the question of the relationship between socialism and democracy, right? So the occasion, you you mentioned Bonapartism in 1848, the occasion for my article was the election of Trump and a kind of discontent with democracy on both sides, right? So the people who voted for Trump were discontented with democracy and the people who voted against Trump were also discontented with democracy. And that goes back again to that 1912 moment to Woodrow Wilson. So interesting thing about Woodrow Wilson, he's known for two ideas. He was a historian and a political, academic, political scientist type figure before he got involved in politics. So he wrote two things that are of note. One was a study of Germany and a study of German politics and the Reichstag and the German state, a kind of an admiring study, as well as a cautionary study. And he's also known for having said very explicitly that the U.S. Constitution was obsolete and that we have to pretend to do things according to the Constitution, but in reality, we have to violate the Constitution all the time. So we have to kind of pay lip service to the Constitution. And, you know, but in fact, we're way beyond the Constitution. And, you know, he said, there's really four branches of government In the United States. So there's the uh, Congress, the executive, and the judiciary. But he said there's also the administrative state, the deep state, the permanent bureaucracy, and that's really a fourth branch of government. And that branch is as important and in some ways more important than the other three branches because of the conditions of modern capitalism. Right? So it was capitalism that made the Constitution obsolete. And his vision of progressivism is, you know, we have to sort of manage this society in capitalism, and we have to appear to do it according to bourgeois liberal democracy, but in fact, it's not that anymore. That's the Democratic Party. That is the Democratic Party. Right? From Woodrow Wilson through FDR up to the present, the Democratic Party does not believe in the Constitution. The Republicans have made it their mission in life since FDR to stand for the Constitution. Now they of course are very hypocritical about this and, and have to violate the Constitution themselves all the time, but they pretend to stand for the Constitution. Whereas the Democrats they basically say, well yeah, you know the Constitution. No, not really, right? So, you know, we we can't really have freedom of speech. And we can't have freedom of self defense, right to bear arms, we can't have that. We can't have, like, really states' rights either. We can't have that because that's too chaotic. It's too incompatible with the needs of modern society, which means capitalism. So, again, does the left agree with that? It didn't. The socialist Marxist left did not have that perspective but starting in the 1930s the left started adopting that perspective themselves and they that's part of how they rationalize the soviet union and those countries that come out of the soviet experience like eastern europe china cuba vietnam korea the way the left regards these these countries is that they are kind of you know modern you know administrative. And, you know, the, 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 the only problem is that they're kind of economically backward and they're attacked by imperialism and this and that, right? But otherwise, right? And, you know, maybe they're undemocratic, but, you know, does that, does that really matter? Is Cuba undemocratic? Will people admit that Cuba is undemocratic? Or will they say, well, the Soviet Union might not have been democratic, but Cuba is democratic, right? So when I was in Germany, I was really shocked. The Cuba C, the little Vans, the d they're very pro-Cuba. Mm, yeah, they are. Right? And mm. again, when did the left decide that it was really a technocratic capitalist political force? In the 1930s. They had a little rebellion against that in the 60s. They had a little rebellion against that in the 60s, but then they went back. Right. And again, what are they trying to do? They're trying to preserve society against capitalism. Yes. But they're also kind of doing what's necessary in capitalism against the you know, conservative reactionaries. And, you know, they've made liberal into a bad word. Right. And they've even turned freedom into a bad word. Right, because liberal just means, oh, the rights of the capitalists, the rights of the minority capitalists, the rights of the exploiter, and freedom just means freedom to exploit.
0: Mm. Yeah, we need social, we need social justice.
2: Social justice, right. Because, right, and and the right is individualist, and, Mm. you know, whereas the left is collectivist, all this stuff. And that has long, long roots, you know, into back into the 1930s. But it also is very recent because of the neoliberal era and because we're living in the crisis of neoliberalism, I think it calls into question all of these assumptions about social reality and politics and capitalism and the relationship of these things to each other, how they how they relate historically to, to each other. Those things have been stirred up. And I think it's been a good occasion for people to think again, reconsider things. But generally, the left has been inhibited from doing so. There's been some, some attempts in that direction, but mostly early on in the millennial left. And I would say, not really since Trump. I think since, since Trump, there's no reconsideration. It's just like, no, we know what we stand for. We know what's right and what's wrong. And we just have to stick to that.
0: Yeah, maybe we can go a little bit deeper into The Millennial Left, because you published in 2017 also the article, The Millennial Left is Dead, and I was wondering how do these two articles speak to each other?
2: Okay, so I would say they both marked 10 years of platypus in different ways, though. So The Millennial Left is Dead was written for the 100th issue of The Platypus Review, And it was marking 10 years of the Platypus Review, 10 years generally of the millennial left, and 10 years of Platypus and Platypus's engagements with the millennial left. So Platypus started in 2006 as a reading group, but really only became an organization in 2007. That's when we started putting on our public events and when we started publishing the Platypus Review. So I wanted to say, okay, 10 years, let's see what what let's have a taking stock moment. And then I wanted to say, okay, what is the broad historical sweep that the millennial left has succumbed to? Like, what's the moment in, in a larger historical context? And that's where I wanted to write the Gilded Age article to say, look, it's not that the millennial left failed just in its own time. It did. But it failed in terms of this history that we're living in. There was some attempt in the millennial left to reach back to, to pre-World War One socialism. There was some attempt at that. There was a kind of neo-Kautskyan moment, Bhaskar Sankara. That's how we know him. We know him as someone who was giving Lenin a second look and giving Debs a second look and giving, you know, because generally speaking, the domination of Stalinism has also meant consigning the pre-World War One. Marxist movement to oblivion, right? They weren't really Marxists, whatever. And I, you know, my attitude of course has always been Lenin was a product of the second international. That's always been my perspective. It was interesting that the millennials rediscovered that but they've backed away from that recognition. They've shied away from it and it's become obscure history again, you know, in favor of a kind of new left history And a kind of new left Stalinism, like a celebration of like Mao and, you know, like this is, this is the new kind of younger Zoomer kind of attitude is to sort of forget, you know, so they'll go back to the 30s. They will, but they won't really go back before then, Not really. There was a moment in the millennial left where they did reach back further. And again, the reason that they reached back further is not because, you know, oh, well, the earlier history is right that's not the issue. The issue is the earlier history is relevant, right? It's not just correct. It's not like, okay, Marxism was correct at a certain point in, in history and then it became incorrect. No, it's that we're still dealing with the same problems. That's why we might reach back to that time. And it's going to be more resonant with our moment than going back to Marx and Engels in the 1840s and 50s and 60s, right? Um, I mean, Marx, you know, Marx is Marx, but it is actually a different world. Marx and Engels lived in a different world than Lenin, and Lenin lives more in our world. Now, there was a time in the 20th century where people thought we no longer live in Lenin's world, that Lenin seemed like a Victorian era type figure, you know, but I think that in 2023, I think we can say we still live in Lenin's world. I mean, we still live in Marx's world, but I think more recognizably, we still live in Lenin's world. You know, Vladimir Putin is still trying to bury Lenin. <laughs> sure. Right? Yeah. There's a war going on that is meant to bury Lenin again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Ukraine yep. only exists because of Lenin. Yeah. Because Lenin made this mistake. And again, if we live in Lenin's world, then we live in Theodore Roosevelt's world, Woodrow Wilson's world, Eugene Debs' world, right? We're still dealing with those issues. That was my point. And it, it is meant to be somewhat provocative, but it's also something that others, like Glenn Beck, right, you know, can see. You know, they, did, they, did this. okay, when did this all start? When did this start? Back then. Yes, that is when it started. You know, the world that we live in, and we live in the world of World War I, you know, the aftermath of World War I, we're still dealing with those issues, Israel, Palestine. Everything can be traced back to that era, actually.
1: I have another question. Once I heard you saying that um, the Gilded Age article is the most important article you ever wrote for Platypus. I wonder why. And, I mean, you wrote it some years ago.
2: Did the relevance of it change? I hope not. Um, I think, I think in many ways it is the most, I mean, I've obviously written a lot for Platypus and there are, there are many good articles I've written for Platypus, I would say, if I do say so myself, but if I had to choose one, this would be the one meaning any current or future left has to deal with the problems I raise in this article. Right. And again, it's for reasons of history. So, you know, usually I'm writing at a more kind of theoretical level. And this is one of my few actually historical articles.
1: But also you're going at it mostly from a perspective of capitalist politics and not so much from a socialist movement perspective. You could easily describe that era from a perspective, I mean, through the revisionist mm-hmm. dispute, through the, yeah, through, through, the, through the crisis of Marxism peaked with the revolutions
2: and so on. But you didn't. We're not dealing with socialist politics today we're dealing with capitalist politics. Like I usually say the left is dead and it's been dead for a long time. It's been dead since 1919, pretty much. Like again, Marxism. Marxism is dead since 1919. You know, it's Adorno. Adorno, you know, wrote in those 20s, he wrote in the 1960s, the nostalgia for the 1920s was wrong because the historical verdict had already been delivered, right? everything was determined by what happened in 1919, my old professor Moish Postone at my dissertation defense on Adorno, he said, Chris, you might be right that everything ended in 1919, but we're still thinking, aren't we? And I said, Moish, are we thinking? I'm not sure, right? Because, you know, we might just be talking and not thinking, you know, to use a Heideggerian expression. We might not be thinking, we might be just chatting. Right? We might just be mumbling. And again, well, when did that happen? When did people stop thinking? In the Gilded Age. That was the last thought. <laughs> you know. And there really hasn't been anything new to think about. Not really. It's the same. And that's why we haven't been thinking, because there's nothing new to think about. Is that the meaning of the first census of the article, if I
1: may read that out loud? You say, you write, the account of history is the theory of the present. How did we get here and what tasks remain from the past? That, however, appear to be new today. As Adorno put it, the new is the old in distress. This is true of
2: capitalism and its crisis now. Yeah, well, because, you know, I am a kind of Hegelian as well as a Marxist, and so I do think that History is really about the present. You know, the story we tell ourselves about the past is really a story of the present. That's the only reason to concern ourselves with the past is because it really is present. The past is present. You know, it's the William Faulkner quote, the past is not dead. It's not even past. Right. Why is it not even past? Because we're still living with the effects of things people did 100 years ago. Right. Those dominate us. Those actions continue to act, and they dominate us. And we have to deal with them. And we do. You know, we, People do consciously try to deal with them. The question is, how well do they grasp them? So another point about the Gilded Age in the United States is that you know the black question in the United States is a longstanding social and political problem. It's not just something on the left. It's something that capitalist politics has to deal with. Well, when did that start? It didn't start in 1619. It did not start in 1619, no. It also didn't start in 1776. Right? The black question as we experience it today is really a 1919 time. So 1919 is when the two things happened. There were race riots and there was the Palmer Raids to suppress the Socialist Party. Right. Uh, the FBI was basically invented to to destroy the Socialist Party. It was the Red Scare. And the race riots happened um, because of the return of the black troops after World War I. They didn't want to deal with racism anymore. And, you know, again, why were they in that position? Because of the Second Industrial Revolution, right? They weren't sharecroppers anymore. They were industrial workers, they moved north. They became the ghettos of the cities. It's the same thing as today, right? In 1865 or in 1776 or in 1619, black people were not in the same position that they're in today. They're in the same position today that they were in in 1919. As are we all, as are we all. What else happened in 1919? Women got the right to vote. Feminism, first wave feminism was fulfilled, right? Legal juridical equality was achieved a hundred years ago. And yet we're still dealing with the issues of that. Why? Because of capitalism, (laughs) right? Why did women get the right to vote? Because of capitalism. Why are we still dealing with issues of feminism? Because of capitalism. Why wasn't it settled? Why didn't legal equality settle it? Because of capitalism. So again, when we think about the past, we're really thinking about the present.
1: I remember something... I'm not sure what, what what was you who said it, but uh, some years ago um Platypus was um, was organizing a lecture series to the um, to the American Revolution mm-hmm. and their one point was that it's not about making sense of the past from the perspective of the present, but uh, the other way around, like what does the present look like from the perspective of the past? Yes. And uh, I found that back then very complicated. Point, but uh, I think what you just explained uh, goes in
2: that direction. So Eugene Debs famously said that if Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln were still alive, they wouldn't be Republicans or Democrats, but they'd be socialists. Even though the Republican Party thinks of itself as the party of Lincoln, and the Democratic Party thinks of itself as the party of Jefferson, although not anymore, because uh, Jefferson had to be canceled. But again, like, what would Thomas Jefferson think of us today? what would Abraham Lincoln think of us today? Well, these are the questions that we have to ask. We also have to ask the question, what would Marx think of us today? And I do all the time. I walk around, I walk the streets, and I think, I see something, and I think, what would Lenin think of that? What would Adorno think? What would Marx think? But since we're not living in a world in which Marx, Lenin, Adorno have any effect, we got to think, what would Thomas Jefferson or Abraham Lincoln think? In the United States but also in the world, in the world. um, What would they think of these things going on in the world? You know, what would that that mean to them? And what would they think of the tasks that we face, you know? And, you know, Kant and Hegel, what would they think of the world that we live in? You know, what would they think our task is, right? So uh, that's a Walter Benjamin idea. Allowing the past to criticize the present, you know, or task the present. The unfulfilled tasks of the past are still our tasks. We try to abandon them. And of course, that's really the issue with like the Gilded Age, is that the Gilded Age posed the question of the dictatorship of the proletariat in places like the United States and Germany. Um you know probably the task of the dictatorship of the proletariat was not fully manifest in the United States or Germany in 1848 but it certainly was in 1918-1919 right so that's 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 the difference and it still is the task although people want to forget that task, right? They want to forget Marxism. So if we raise the question of Marxism, we're really raising the question of that era, because I think that since then, the Marxist socialist left has basically not wanted to deal with the dictatorship of the proletariat. Not since then. they've, They've basically adopted, like, a petty bourgeois radical democratic vision, rather than the dictatorship of the proletariat. And so even though that that task has been posed from a Marxist perspective since 1848, 1848 was also premature, meaning there wasn't a political force that existed that could have implemented that in 1848. But at the end of the Gilded Age, there was. And it failed, or was defeated, or however you want to think about it. And we can't just drop that and do something else. If we have to go beyond that, we might have to go beyond that. You know, the left thinks, oh, we have to go beyond that old style Marxism. Yeah, we might have to go beyond it. We might, but we have to fulfill it to go beyond it. If we don't fulfill it, we're never going to go beyond it. So that's the other point, you know, um, like, oh, are we still living in the Gilded Age? Oh, no, we've dealt with this, that, and the other thing. Well, Not really. You know, we've avoided, that's what we've done. We've avoided the problems that first were manifest in the Gilded Age. We haven't fulfilled the tasks of those problems. We've tried to do everything except fulfill those tasks. We've tried all the alternatives. We've spent a hundred years avoiding and trying to find, well, maybe we don't need the dictatorship of the proletariat. Maybe we need something else. We've tried a lot in the last hundred years. I think a hundred years is long enough. Including fascism and Stalinism. Yeah, fascism, Stalinism, feminism, you know, black nationalism, decolonization, third world nationalism, like everything. Like we've tried everything. You know, queer, trans, we've tried we've tried it all. So a hundred years we can say, okay, maybe. <laughs> you know, Islamic fundamentalism, you know maybe we need to get back to the task we've been trying to avoid for the last 100 years.
0: I want to bring us a little bit um, into the present and near future, which is the US facing the general election uh, very soon. So I'm interested with this article and in the back of our minds, what are the prospects for 2024? And will the election be important for the left and for Platypus? And how can we prepare ourselves and our students for the coming tasks?
2: We're kind of sleepwalking into the future, aren't we? (laughs) Meaning, I don't think that people have really dealt with the 2016 election adequately. And the 2020 election basically was occluded by COVID and, you know, the George Floyd riots here in the United States, Um, but really COVID sort of dominated politics and sort of obscured the issue. And I think that, you know, the Democrats and maybe the left too, in the United States, want to pretend that that was just a sort of an aberration. It was like a little nightmare that we woke up from, and that's over. And now we just proceed. And it won't go away. It won't go away, really. It's not going to go away. Not really, no. I mean, of course, my sense of poetic justice is that Trump will be reelected in 2024. Whether in reality that will happen is another thing. But my sense of like cosmic fate and poetic justice is that that is what is going to happen. Now, maybe not, but in any case, you can be sure that in either a sharp way or in a blunted and obscured way, the issues of 2016 are going to come back. Meaning after eight years of Obama and four years of Biden, the bankruptcy of the progressive politics will have been demonstrated. The Republicans, of course, agree with the Democrats on most things. You know, they just want to go a little bit slower. You know, so they're they're also part of, like, progressive capitalist politics. They are. They're not, like, reactionaries, really. And Trump represents something that challenges the way that those things are handled. Trump is not a reactionary. Not really. People heard Make America Great Again as if it meant going back to the 1950s, right? Going back to before the new left and before the new social movements. He didn't. He meant go back to the 1990s, right? Go back to the kind of neoliberal promise of prosperity in capitalism. Um, So he sees just a kind of uh, incompetence at the level of politics, which there is. There is. um, There is real incompetence. However, there are also deeper issues at work. There There are historical issues at work. It's not mere incompetence you know, any more than it was the incompetence of Louis Sixteenth or Tsar Nicholas II, right? They were incompetent, but that's not why those revolutions happened. So, yeah, we are still, I think, looking ahead to a deeper political crisis, that they tried to defer it and postpone it, but it will come back, and it will come back maybe worse, the crisis. I mean, all sorts of things could happen in terms of like the, the crisis of capitalist politics, I think the worst is still coming. It's not behind us. Yeah. And I think the left, again, like the Democrats want to put it behind us, you know, say, okay, we dodged, we dodged that. It's going to get worse, I'm afraid, you know, which I'm not at all happy about right? But I do think we have to be prepared for it. And by worse, I mean more kind of chaos, more kind of political violence, more problems that the left generally will not be prepared to deal with. You know, they'll try, you know, they tried with like anti-fascism or whatever. That wasn't really adequate to the task and it will be even less so in the future. It's not going to look exactly like what they've been expecting they think that a right wing backlash looks like R- Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. Right? They they they're used to thinking in those terms and they can't see the new kinds of capitalist politics that are emerging. In its they can't understand that politics in its own terms. They have to sort of try to reassimilate it to the old stuff. Which is not, not gonna be accurate or or particularly helpful
0: okay i want to highlight that johannes uh our leipzig member jan and i are currently working on a german translation of the gilded age article so for those who speak german stay tuned
2: and thank you for that
0: yeah i will provide all links and references made during the interview in the episode description and please revisit chris article so, any last words from you? Uh,
2: thanks for the opportunity to talk about this, and thanks for you know this interview, and uh, happy new year.
0: Happy new Thank year. You. <laughs>
2: happy new happy year. Happy new year.
0: Thanks for coming on.
2: Okay. Bye. Bye.
0: This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Vellagy. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about Platypus, or to access the entire archive of Platypus Reviews and panel recordings, please visit us online at platypus1917.org. That's the word platypus, followed by the numerals 1917.org. Bye!